working through the podcast, I realized that really as students, we have the power to ask about everything. So this is why students are such powerful agents of change. And hopefully, this episode, which explores student health research and advocacy, specifically at McGill, will help you see all the influence that a student could hold. Addendum is very happy to have done this episode in collaboration with the Honor Science program. The professor will introduce our guest speakers for today. So, have a good listen. Let us get started. I'm going to introduce our speakers. We have uh, here, uh, we're welcoming Dr. Brett Toms. He's a professor and Canada Research Chair in McGill University's Faculty of Medicine. McGill undergraduates play an important role in this team's work, including on mental health in COVID-19 and on how they can improve research to improve health. We have also um, Olivia Bernardi, who's a McGill undergraduate who's majoring in anatomy and cell biology and anthropology. Olivia is the president of the McGill chapter of Universities Allied for Essential Medicines and is doing research on mental health trials in COVID-19. So today they'll talk to us about changing the world one semester at a time. They'll discuss examples of student health research and advocacy at McGill. Great, well, thanks Simon. And thanks everybody for coming. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, and thanks to Olivia for joining me. So we're gonna talk a couple of things, things today. We'll talk about some of the research we do. And, and just to give you an idea also of some of the things that students can do at McGill, including undergraduate students. And, and at least, you know, in medicine and other areas, many, many people are doing research that you, in which you can get involved. So we're, we only do one particular kind. There's all sorts of other things going on. But I think it gives a good example of how you can get involved in, in real research that actually does change what people do out there, out there in the world. So this, this is to give an idea, this is the way things are set up on research teams at McGill. You usually have a professor or an investigator and they go out and get grants and you get money to pay people's salaries and then you get put teams together and then these teams do do projects. So this is this is most of our team here, just to give you an idea. And you'll see that there's lots, lots of, I hope you'll notice there's lots of young people here. Uh, there's some of us that are not so young here, but I want to illustrate that we do have, we do have a good number of, you know, undergraduate students that do work with our team as part of theses or other experiences. You know, we have master's students, we have doctoral students, and we have postdoctoral fellows, uh, which in today's day and age is a necessary evil after you've actually done your doctoral degree, if you wanna go into research, you can continue to get more training afterwards. So we have uh, some, of, some of the team um, are postdocs as well. And just to, give a, just to give a little bit of an illustration, we really emphasize, so I'd say we have a teaching and training program and that's, and I think we maybe even emphasize training a lot more than others, but these are just a few ideas. These, these papers here, we have a number, a lot more than this, but are just papers that were, you know, published in, in medical journals and first authored by undergraduate students. Um, so I can keep emphasizing that we, when we do research, we do research that again is, is useful and affects things that matter. And we really work on getting people opportunity to learn while they're doing it. And, and to begin a track record of learning what it, of publishing and learning what it means to do research. So what does our team do? Some researchers do things deep. They focus on one area and they go very deep. When I was a 15 years ago, postdoctoral fellow at Johns Hopkins, and I'm a psychologist, I should say I'm a psychologist by training. And I do a lot of methodological work and I work in a faculty of medicine. So 
as with many people today, you I've kind of spread out into other areas, but I would say that we do, um, as I started to say, you know, I got a talk when I worked on a burn unit 15 years ago and someone said, you have to focus on one thing. You only work not just in burns, but pain in burns. And some people develop careers doing deep research in one area. And we need those people desperately. Like right now in COVID, you have some of these people with infectious diseases that have been lingering in the, in the shadows in some ways for many, many years. And thank, thank goodness they are because right now we're relying upon them a lot. And they work deeply in some of these uh, infections and immunizations and so forth. So my, my career and way we've done things is somewhat different. And it just depends on your personality. But I say I go wide instead of deep and then develop methodological skills that apply across many areas. And we get involved in many different kinds of projects. So, um, so you know, as a psychologist, we, I do things as our spin group. We work with a rare disease called uh, scleroderma. It uh, means hard skin in Greek. And it basically is an autoimmune disease where people's, as you can imagine, they're, you know, they're, they're, when you get hurt and injure yourself and you produce collagen, it forms a scab. And at some point that scab goes away. Well, for them, it's an ongoing process as an auto, autoimmune disease. So the body attacks itself and has lots of ramifications. So we do work in that area. And, and, and we, you know, across the board, we try to solve problems through using good methods that, you know, that solve difficult problems that nobody had, had been solved, working effectively on. So in this one, getting, getting tools like psychological tools and self-management tools and how to cope with your disease to people with a rare disease had always been very hard just because there's, by definition, there are not very many people with that disease in any one place. So we put together, we have a, we have a cohort or a multinational collaboration of about 50 sites in seven countries. And we involve several thousand people with this condition. <clears throat> and then we run trials uh, to try to help uh, test programs to help them live better with their disease. The, the second I kind of have there with a little house with a spin logo inside it, that was our COVID trial. So one of the things we did is, is we actually, you know, we, again, we work on trial methods and I'll talk about that a little bit is we've developed since we have ongoing cohorts and so forth that we were able to launch a trial and cohort, which I'm not gonna talk about today, but we back in April of last year, very quickly in about a couple of weeks, we, we put together a, a trial where we provided a, a intervention. People with scleroderma are frail. Uh, they take immunosuppressant drugs, which makes them vulnerable to an infection. Um, and they have respiratory disease. So they're very vulnerable. They were highly isolated. And we put together a video conference based psychological intervention and tested it in about, almost a couple of hundred people. And it's coming out in publication soon, finally. Um, so now those are those were kind of COVID specific. Well, that, that's COVID specific. Uh, we also have another COVID specific project we've been working on that Olivia's been involved. So Olivia actually went, came to us to do meta research. Olivia's an undergraduate student, um, and and when COVID started, everything got appended. So we've been working on what's called a living systematic review of evidence of mental health in COVID. That means that you know every day we get feeds of all the evidence coming from around the world on uh, mental health. Uh, have symptoms changed since before mental COVID uh, started or not? What's happened to people's symptoms over the course of the uh, pandemic? And also, you know, are there trials? Are there are there interventions that governments like the Canadian government can use to help people? And Olivia jumped from, I have to say, stepped in and doesn't act like an undergraduate. So she helped run this program. Has done a fantastic job and has working. Been working on this for about a year now. Uh, and we've, you know, it's, it's been useful. We're consulting with the, the public health agency and some other people on their response to mental health and COVID. Um, so what, what else do we do? We also uh, lead a, a project called the Depressed Project. It's, it's a terrible name. So if someone has a better name, they can help us out of this one. We, we, we'd appreciate it. But we actually look at, we look at how accurate tests are to find who might have depression, who doesn't. Some of you might have gone to your doctors and they might give you a questionnaire. 
and they might, based on their score, decide whether they think you might be depressed or not. Or there's all sorts of these things floating around online, unfortunately. But um, so we do a lot of work. We pull together big data sets. We have now about 350 people from around the world who provide data, and we analyze exactly you know what what levels we should be concerned about people and and that kind of thing. And then finally, the last thing I want to I'll mention I do is I lead, I chair something called the Canadian Task Force on Preventive Healthcare, and that's a guideline group. So that means that you know, when you get out there and you go to your doctor and all, the, all these people are doing all this research, which research do they use and how do they handle your, your care? You know, should you get screened for uh, cancer at some point? At what age should you start? Um, and for, you know, a woman out there, it's cervical cancer. That's one of the only people, young people get screened for is cervical cancer. So we, our, our group brings together all the evidence and makes those kind of recommendations to doctors to work with people like you and figure out what's best for your health. So we, a lot of this we do, and like I said, all of this, the theme that runs through this is that we try to, again, use good statistics and methodology. Some of you are already taking stats classes or quantitative methods courses, and, and we apply this in a way that we can some, solve some problems that haven't solved before. And the last area we do, and I'm going to talk about today, is meta-research. So this kind of, again, this current running through it of methods, but what is meta-research? It's basically research on research. And one of the reasons I'm gonna talk about it is because this is one area where we've had undergrads get really, really highly involved and they've published a lot in this area. And that might sound uh, surprising. You know, so if you're doing research on research, you're researching other people's research and they already have their doctoral degrees and they're out there doing it. How could an undergrad have much to say about this? Um, but, but there are lots of ways that we can improve how we do research. And I'll show you some of those today. And it's actually a great way to get undergraduate students involved because you know, they can really isolate on one area of a research design and one facet of it, learn that area. And then we go out and see how, how it's being applied or usually it's not being applied very well or people are making mistakes in that area. And we try to document that and then teach people how they can do it better. And so this has been, kind of been a great area for people to get involved in and do projects. So this is a big thing that we do and we're involved in different groups around the world that try to improve the caliber of the research that we're doing. So, you know, why do we, you know, why do we do health and research or what are we doing in the first place? I mean, in some ways it's very simple in health science and there's research in all sorts of other areas. Everything we're doing now increasingly, more and more of what we're doing in whether it be how we heat our buildings to addressing climate change, uh, to poverty uh, and to healthcare is based on evidence. So, you know, you know, if you're sick and there's much more that goes on before you're sick, there's obviously people out there studying viruses and other things that make you sick. But I work in applied research. So most of what we work on is, you know, once you're sick and have a problem, you're going to hopefully go to someone, a healthcare provider, and hopefully you're going to come out feeling much, you know, healthy at the end. And that's kind of the paradigm. But another thing that's important to consider, and the bottom down below, and Olivia's, this, this is going to be somewhat what Olivia talks about, is someone has to make decisions about who gets what and how that evidence goes in. So not, not every doctor goes out there. I mean, if you think about your family doctor and all the thousands of conditions she or he has to know about. So someone's providing them guidelines, someone's deciding whether to pay for it or not, and someone's advocating. And sometimes we have real imbalances in the decisions we make. You know, we might not be choosing the right things to provide to people because of uh, equity issues. Like some people, you know, in, in Canada, we, we, it's well documented that indigenous people tend to have less access to meet necessary healthcare uh, immigrant groups or other groups, poverty can be involved. And there's other reasons we do the wrong things. It could be because, you know, people are, are making money because someone, you know, they have a certain product they'd like us all to use and they've gotten the ear of the health minister somehow or someone like that. So 
So the decision maker is a big part of this. And Olivia's going to be talking about advocacy and advocacy work and, and how you can influence what kind of decisions are made and about who, get, who gets the health care. And again, like I said, more and more in healthcare is based on evidence. It's called evidence-based practice or evidence-based medicine. Take the research we, we've done and we tie it into you know, clinical experience and patient preferences and hopefully provide the best care possible to everybody. And that's kind of the area where we work. So just to, just to start off here, and what we're gonna do by the way, so I know that everyone's muted out there and I'll have a few questions and hopefully you'll get some input from people. And we're gonna try this, but Olivia's gonna to try to either, if you have something to say, ask some questions, you have some input, she can identify who you are and you go ahead and ask your, ask your question or provide your answer. And we might, we might have um, a show of hands from once in a while um, and see what you think. But I wanna know what you think. This is actually data from an actual study. And this is on a, a treatment, a, a drug treatment uh, for depression. And just to give you a little bit of perspective, that now this is scaled at zero. So they start that everyone has a zero score, basically. The breadth of the scale is about 17 points So, in these treatment trials. So if you'll see here, that on average, within about three weeks of getting treatment, that's the x-axis across the bottom, people dropped about 10 points or in, on their scores out of a total of 17. So the most of their symptoms were, were gone. They've reduced. And that stayed stable over 24 weeks, so about six months. So the question is, is, is this a good treatment for depression? I don't know, should we sh show of hands or we do it that way? I mean, that makes sense. So who, I can't see, but Olivia, you can tell me what you're seeing. I can only see a few of you up there. But show, show your hand if you think this is probably a good treatment, uh, a good option for depress depression that we should provide to people, you know? Should this be something that a policymaker uh, should approve? You know, is this, is this a good deal for people? So everyone's raising their hand says that they think this is a good, probably a good treatment, right? Okay. Okay, so lots of people we can, does anybody think this is not a good option? We'll stop, we'll stop, we'll stop the yeses now, so stop for a second now. Does anybody think this is a bad option? So, why don't we say, who, if someone, listen, we, I think there are a lot more that said yes and no, although I can't see everybody. Olivia, do you agree? Yeah. Yeah, a lot more yeses than no. Does someone who said that this is a good option want to explain why you think this is a good option? Anyone want to, if you put your hand up, Olivia will call on you. And there's, there's probably no wrong answers here, by the way. Or, or at least if you're getting it wrong, so have some experienced healthcare researchers. That's what our point is. So don't worry about it. Through a lot more experiences than, than you have, will get it right. Anyone want to take a stab at why this is a, probably a good, good, good treatment for people? Any volunteers? Just put a hand up. Can I talk now? Yeah. Why? Yep. Go ahead. So why? Why do you think this is a good, good option for people with depression? I think this is a good option because it can reduce the symptoms rapidly and thus reduce a lot of dangers related to the symptoms. Okay, so there's quick quick symptom reduction, right? Did you have something else to say or anything? So this is more like a question. I think my interpretation was a bit more nuanced. I'm not sure if the point of drugs for mental health is to create a dependency as well. Like, I'm not sure if the end goal is to be weaned off the medication, but if it remains stagnant all the time, maybe it won't remain stagnant at a certain point. And if someone's willing to have to take it for such a long time, I'm not sure how good that is for them. 
Like, I'm not sure. I'm not an expert in this domain. Don't apologize. So it is actually you made a really important point. So I, I mentioned this task force that I chair too. And this comes up all the time. No medical interventions come for free. So anytime you're doing something, either as a society, we're paying for it and we can't do other things, right? And almost everything harms people in some way. It could be it takes away a few minutes of your time. And it could be, so I'll give an example of breast cancer or prostate cancer. Everyone said, you know, screen for breast cancer, for instance, but, and it does save women's lives, right? But it also creates some number of women who get surgery that would have never known they had a problem because our tests aren't perfect. So you've got either good things and bad things, right? And, and the, the best thing we can do in those cases is say there are good things and bad things. And then we present people the information, say now, and we help people to pick, make sure they understand the information they pick. So you're bringing up a good point. How would you know? Because we haven't talked about what the harms, right? How, how hard, how, and I hadn't intended to talk about this, but this is a great point. So I'll, I'll go follow through on this. So, right. So there's more increasing evidence that it's actually difficult to get off antidepressants for some people in, in the long term. So that's a fair point. And there are side effects, right? So it does reduce symptoms, but there's some negative sides with this. Okay. Did it, anyone, did anyone who said that was a bad idea wanted want to say why they thought this was a bad idea to, uh, we had some people that, that raised their hand for this was a bad idea. They didn't believe this was a good treatment, right? Did anyone want to answer why they thought it was a not a good idea? Okay, well, I don't, I don't see anybody. But Olivia, you'll just stop me if I'm missing. Okay, I, I can only see this limited part of the screen. Okay, so just to go forward to show you, this this is only one arm of a trial. So in a trial, and I'll talk about trials in a minute, you get randomized to different arms and different treatments. So that, by the way, that was the placebo arm. Uh, who knows what a placebo is? Anyone want to volunteer? What's a placebo? Anyone? Do you want to go ahead and unmute yourself? So like a placebo is when you're not taking a medication, but you're told that you're taking the medication. So maybe you're taking something that doesn't have the active ingredient of the actual medication. Perfect. You qualify as a medical dictionary. That's great. That's a great, perfect explanation. So essentially, yeah, you're getting something that looks like the pill. It looks like, like the drug in every way, the same color. Uh, the same capsule size, but it has an inert substance. They often call them sugar pills, but they don't actually use sugar because you know you're getting sugar because sugar is sweet. But they, um, but it's 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 an inert powder of some kind inside the capsule. Right? So you don't know. So ideally, you won't know which one you're getting. So if you look at this trial, now these are two antidepressants here, and you'll see that the uh, sertraline and citalopram reduce the symptoms even more, right? Now, so my point here is that. The problem is that if you don't know, you need to know the natural history of a condition. Now I showed you a placebo and placebos do have some effect if you think you're getting something and you're not. But if you actually have people that sign up for depression trials and don't get anything, they look a lot like actually the, um, they look like the placebo group. Now, why could, why could that be? If you think about sometimes depression symptoms go up and down and, and do you sign up for a trial or for treatment when you're at the low end of your symptoms or the high end? Well, the high end, right? And if people are going up and down, if people are signing up when they're high, on average, they're going to come down. So that's the natural history of people who sign up for depression treatment. They come down. So your treatments have to do better than that. But that's not always the case. Think about if you're in palliative care because you, you know, of cancer and you're trying to control someone's pain. They're not going to come down over time, right? They're going to probably go up. And so if you could even keep that flat with no change, you, you, your, your intervention, whether it be a drug intervention or a, a other kind of psychological intervention or you know physical therapy, keeping it flat would be good. So you, you have to have a comparison, right? You can't just, that's what we're involved. So most of the stuff we're doing, 
we're talking about randomized trials. And that's not everything we do, but usually we talk about randomized trials in healthcare interventions. And these can actually be quite complicated in some ways, but to, to keep it simple, basically in a randomized trial, you know, every person who comes through, there's a coin flip. It's usually an electronic coin flip now, but you get a coin flip and that coin flip determines if you get, uh, you know, in this case, group one is getting an intervention and group two is a control. In some ways, fairly simple. Again, there, there's different things can make them very complicated, but these are, it's a very simple model, right? And that's what we look to when we look at healthcare research. And we wanna know, ideally, that the people who get the intervention do better than the ones who don't. And like Holly mentioned before, which is a great point, their increased well-being is enough that we can justify how much it costs and whatever harms that happen to them, right? And the cost, by the way, is not just because the government people want us to take the money away and run off to the Bahamas. It's because if they spend it on this and it's not very effective, spending a lot of money for something that doesn't help people very much, they can't spend it on something that does help people. The way the world works is we have more things that we can do than we have the funds for, right? Uh, and we can go into that in a whole other topic. Brett, we had a good question. Yeah. My question was, is the mean change from baseline the best indicator to measure whether somebody is depressed or not depressed? Because, I mean, would there be other factors that might bias the mean change from the baseline as a key metric? That's what they usually use in trials. They either do that or they or they uh, count how many people have a reduction beyond a certain point. It's a good point, right? Is the mean change? Because actually, that one thing that you're getting into measurement, how we measure things, but ideally, right, if, if, so if, if a mean change is three points, not everyone goes down three points when you come in the trial, that probably means that, and that's actually what happens in depression trials. You have a mean change and one or two people out of 10 or so get substantially improved that wouldn't have improved otherwise. That's probably the going rate. So it's not an average for everybody. So that doesn't capture that, right? Which I think you're pointing out. So there's different, they usually look at different metrics. So look at that. They'll also look at uh, what proportion of people in the treatment arm and another arm dropped by a certain amount. And they're going to call that a response. These are hard trials because there's symptoms that go up a spectrum, right? In some ways, the outcome measurement is a lot easier if you're measuring things like mortality. If you, you know, if you, if you do, um, statins for uh, cholesterol, and you want to see how many people extend people's life, at least in that case, there's complications, but the outcome is easy because we all, we, we're all pretty clear what it means to be, well, this can get as nuanced as you want, but usually dead or alive is a fairly straightforward outcome, right? The, the mental health ones are, are tricky. It's okay. So what, what could go wrong in trials? You know, we can ask the wrong kinds of question. Well, if we screen people for mental health, do we increase mental health services? Well, that's not the right question because we wanna know that they actually have better mental health. If we just get them more services, we're just spending money and using resources. You wanna get a service that works, right? So we, people have asked that one. Another real tricky problem in trials is whether the people in our study look like those in real practices. I mean, how many, when you go to your doctor, and has anyone ever gone to the doctor recently and they say, not in a trial, this is in regular care, and they say, um, you know, by the way, there's a couple of options here. Let's flip a coin and see what I'm gonna recommend for you. And they, well, they don't do that. And people are very uncomfortable with that. So the people who sign up for trials sometimes are very different than the ones who don't. And that can, that can mean that the results from the trial may be not translated very well if you don't get a good representative sample. Um, you can also, you know, we, we prescribe, most antidepressants are prescribed in family practice, not in psychiatry. Yet the trials are done in psychiatry and people who are in psychiatric care are a lot different than people who get their care in family practice, right? So does it work the same way? Well, maybe not. So maybe we don't have the same people. You know, 
are methods adequate? And always, you know, we want to isolate a variable. So in trials, we're isolating that whether you got the treatment or not. That's everything else. Once we randomize people, right? If you coin toss enough people to one group or another one, then all that's different is the, the intervention or not. Fair enough. But we also, we also, there's other kinds of studies too. And one, one thing that always comes to mind in this one, if we adequately isolate, there are other ways to isolate variables, but I work in scleroderma, the rare disease I talked about, and they were finding for a while that smoking was related to better longevity in scleroderma. And any quick, I'm going to I'm like, I'll talk for hours. I'm going to get behind schedule. I'll keep asking questions, but any idea is I'm, I'm quite sure that smoking is not like, we're not going to prescribe everyone with scleroderma and their lung problems to go out and smoke. You know, go smoke, it's going to prolong your life. That's not a real finding. Why might they find that in studies that people who are smoking live longer? Yeah, sure. I think they're not taking into other factors such as exercise and diet and everything else. So they might just leave something aside where the people who smoke might actually have a healthier lifestyle around smoking. Yeah, that, that's a good point. So, right. So when you're not doing trials, because trials, you isolate one variable by randomizing and other kind of studies... You try to use statistics to isolate variables. And right, if you don't capture all the right variables, now what happens here? Because actually drinking leads to better health in scleroderma too. And, and what I think is going on here is that you're not, they're not adequately capturing the impact of the disease and that only people who are relatively healthy can smoke and drink. The other people are so sick and it's not being capturable enough that they, they can't even smoke and drink. So the non-smokers and drinkers in general are, 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 have really, really bad disease. And if that makes sense. So, you know, you got to isolate, your methods have to be good. Do you report your results transparently? I'll talk about that's the wide squared problem. And do you interpret the results correctly? Another one. And finally, you know, are there reasons and motivations why people are going to do things that lead us away from the truth in their trials, a conflict of interest, right? Okay. Some of you probably have a car already. Uh, others you'll be buying in the near future. This is a Toyota RAV4. I was told by my wife that these are very reliable cars. And we should put the picture of that one. Who do you want to report on the RAV4 when you're, when, you're, when you're going to buy it? Do you want Toyota to tell you how well it works? They make the car, right? Or do you want consumer reports? It's a, well, you know, they go out and they have clandestine uh, people doing the, I don't know, evaluations. I think we all know we'd rather have consumer reports tell us how, the, how this car works, right? Okay, well, that's not how we do it in medicine. So almost all drug trials are funded by drug producers. It's very rarely, and they're expensive to do, and the drug companies make lots of money afterwards, so they pay for them. These only get funded by the government. I think generally only get funded when there's lots of controversy, there's been a real dust up and someone's got to try to settle something, but they rarely. But this is a friend of mine, Eric Turner, put this article in the New England Journal about 12 years ago. And what happened is that if you run a drug trial and you want to get your drug approved, at least in the United States, which is the biggest approver of drugs, you have to file your methods and your results and it has to be approved the methods by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. So there's a record somewhere down, and it used to, now it's all online, but it used to be in the balls of the basement somewhere in the FDA. And alternatively, you know, well, you also publish articles, right? You publish an article and what your research results were. So Eric used to work at the FDA as, an, as one of these people who approved these trials. He's a, he's a great person. I really like Eric. And he went out and did one of the first studies. He crawled around the balls and I'm not literally probably, but it was not easy work back then to find this information. So he went and looked at all the drug trials that had been approved by the FDA for licensing drugs to use. And these are going to end up present. This is just because this, a lot of what I'm saying goes for all areas of medicine. I just know this area better because I work in this area. So if you look at the journal articles, 
all those little, all the, all the names across the bottom are antidepressants, different kinds. All the ones on the top are positive trials. I mean, they showed an effectiveness. They reduced symptoms, right? The black ones on the bottom didn't reduce symptoms. This is pretty overwhelming, right? If you look at the journal articles, what happens if you went back to the FDA reports and found what was really there? Not the same story, is it? Okay, it's a very different story. So, this, his, what Eric's one of Eric's great, huge contribution, he really very clearly articulated. Now, if you think about it, this is work. Now, there's some there's some complicated statistics here. So, is it, Robert Rosenthal, who did the statistics, is a well-known statistician. But this is a work where undergrads could have gotten involved because a lot of it is coding and extracting, but carefully and meticulously and getting all the information right. So you can deliver a super clear message and let people know what's going on here. This turned the world around in some way. So, you know, things, it's not perfect, but a lot of, a lot has come uh, changed since then. Now you have to register your trials ahead of time, tell people what outcomes you're measuring, tell people the trial's coming and you have to put the results there by law, if you're, especially with drugs, not with non-drugs, but with drugs, you have to do those things. And it's not perfect. There's still some shenanigans that go on, but it's improved things a lot in that way, at least, right? There's a lot more scrutiny that Eric brought up. I mean, not just Eric, some other people did some work too, but this was a big flashing light, I think, that up there that um, uh, really, really sh uh, showed people where the problems was. Now, and this, by the why does it matter? This is more recent work that, you know, in just, there's hundreds of trials and the basic message here without going through what this means in this graphic, is that industry trials are about 1.3 times more likely to show positive results than non-industry trials when they are available. So I'm talking about our student work. So Michelle Roseman did this as part, at the end of her undergraduate and her master's degree, it's fairly simple. So when you do, when you make policy, again, talking about policy, you don't just use one trial. If there are 20 or 30 trials, you put them all together and you look, you aggregate the evidence in something called a meta-analysis. You bring them all together and say, what is the answer here on does sertraline work for depression? Let's bring all the trials together. There's some complex statistics here. And what I realized in our work was almost like money laundering, that when you got these meta-analysis, we realized we were never seeing who paid for these trials anymore. It's like they've washed it all up and it was gone back then. This, this paper's from about 2010 or 11. And again, this is meticulous work. So like Eric's, Michelle worked for an unlimited amount of, and a massive amount of time. She took 30 meta-analyses that were in the top medical journal. So this, this, her paper came out in JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, one of the top in the world. This is where they came. But she reviewed their meta-analyses uh, in two or three other top general medicine journals. She found that of 29 meta-analyses, only two told people who paid for the drug trials. These were all drug meta-analyses. It was completely hidden. And then she went back and found the original um, 500 and some trials and showed that most of them had conflicts of interest. They were paid for by pharmaceuticals. The authors worked for pharmaceuticals. And this really, we, she did another paper that looked at the Cochrane Collaboration, a really great meta-analysis group, and showed they had the same problem. And this kind of turned, this actually had a great influence too, because now meta-analysts are required to tell who paid for, who's funding the studies in your meta-analysis. Where is this coming from? Do we have independent studies, right? Do we have the consumer report version of this? And this was a, you know, a nice student paper. She's, this is not easy. She was, she's incredibly good at being Michelle, at being careful, meticulous, writing clearly. And she pulled it off. She put this one in the JAMA and the second one in BMJ, a British medical journal, another top journal she did. And we've done several other papers since then. And actually we did a paper a year or so ago that showed that actually has improved quite a bit. And there were policy changes made because of her work, which again, she did as an undergrad and the master. So lots to do. 
do we have the right i'll go through i can, i know i'm going to take all of a, i'm going to run out of time in a few minutes so i don't want to leave time but um do we have the right people in trials this is just very simple like if you're screening people for cancer you don't screen people who already have cancer and so what we're finding in mental health is when people were proposing studies of screening for mental health they were including lots of people with depression in in the screening and they were exaggerating how many people would actually be found by screening and danielle rice went through and documented this nicely as one as her project um Randomizing, okay, so this, this was another undergraduate project by Maria Canedo Ayala from McGill, you know, all McGill undergrads. Um, and this, I did this on my own. I, I, I set up on my Excel a thousand trials, right? Imagine that, a thousand trials, there's a hundred people per trial. And it's one-to-one -one random allocation, meaning that everyone has a 50-50 chance. It's a coin toss to get in the treatment arm or the control arm. Simple randomization just means your treatment or control, nothing complicated. And when I did this, a thousand trials. If you look at the left-hand side here, the number of the treatment arm, it's not 50 in the treatment arm and 50 in the control arm in every trial, is it? The, the number of the treatment arm goes from 31 to 63 or 64 if you do it like that. And again, I, I, I simulated a thousand trials, but that's the same thing you'd get if you really did it. If you look at the right-hand side, only in 85 out of a thousand trials, about 8% of the trials, you got, you got exact 50-50 split, okay? We started noticing when we were looking at trials in real life, and Mara looked at psychological trials published in American Psychological Association journals. I'm gonna skip this one out of time, that it wasn't the case. So she went through a couple hundred trials. What did she find? Well, first of all, we went through 200 trials and we actually contacted the authors to make sure they did simple randomization because you can actually do something called block randomization at balance and those should be balanced. So we wanted to get rid of those. First of all, 80, 80 people, didn't hadn't actually done simple randomization. So they weren't, they weren't sure, they reported it wrong, and we took them away, which is a problem in itself. Remember, it was 8% had exact balance. Look at the top text box there. We found that 61% of these trials were exactly balanced. So if there were 20 people, it was 10 and 10. If there were 21 people, it was 10 and 11. And then what Mara did with some simple, well, not, not so simple statistics, she had a master statistical student helper show that basically with these dark lines here, you know, depending how big your trial is, if you go on the x-axis, you can predict 50% of the trials should have been within those lines. And you notice for the smaller trials, there's smaller gaps. Well, she found that not 50%, but 77% of the trials were within those gaps. It was statistically implausible. There's no way that randomization actually was happening. Now, what, what could be going wrong? Well, maybe people didn't understand. I have to say, when we contact investigators, they weren't able to clearly explain what they've done. So some of them might not have really known what they've done very well, unfortunately. But also, you know, some people cheat. And what does that mean? Like, oh, they have 20 people and all of a sudden they have eight and four and they're worried they're not getting enough people in the control group. They just start moving people there. Okay. What can go wrong? Remember I talked about, about trials and randomization isolating people. What can go wrong if you're not really randomizing anybody? Why, why can that bias our, us away from the truth if we're not actually randomizing, if we're kind of assigning some people to one group without going through randomization? What, what, what's the problem with that? And anyone want to try to take a crack? What could happen if, if the last 50, 10 people in my trial, I just put them in the control group to balance the groups out a little bit? Yeah, sure. I think they're not taking into other factors such as exercise and diet and everything else. So they might just leave something aside where the people who smoke might actually have a healthier lifestyle around smoking. Could have very diff differences, right? It could be like um, 
you know, you could do different days of the week. And some days you have a, your clinics takes more complicated cases. Um, it could not be so innocent. And I remember when I was a postdoctor at Fellow at Hopkins in 2006, they used to not do computer randomization. They put, they put cards in envelopes and you could see through them sometimes. And I remember one trial, I wasn't involved in this, but I know they were doing this. They had a great trial where people got us exercise rehabilitation after a burn injury and they got paid a lot of money to do it. And all the nice patients who they really liked and would co cooperate in rehabilitation after a brain injury. So if the next one was control group, they weren't going to recruit that person then. They would recruit somebody else and then they'd say, oh, next one's intervention. I'm going to go recruit that person because they're so nice. I just wish they'd get this treatment. Well, that's going to screw everything up because now you have all your cooperative people in the group getting the intervention. Cooperative people who, who invest in their care tend to get better anyway, more often than others, right? So it's a real problem. So this is, this is you know, again, an undergraduate paper that she's made a great contribution in, in hopefully addressing this problem. Uh, last couple of minutes here. Let's look at reporting outcomes. Let's imagine that you had a, uh, a trial of uh, a study intervention to improve grades at Marianopolis College. And all students in health sciences were eligible if their grade averages were less than 80. I don't want to enroll somebody with a 95 because you're already getting a 95. We can't improve your grades no matter what we do pretty much, right? So you have to have people who are lower. And we randomized 500 to the intervention, 500 to the intervention. And the calculus grades got better. Should we do it? Well, I was going to ask you about this, but I'm not running out of time. So I'll tell you. Well, no, we shouldn't do it because that was only one of five outcomes, but the people who ran the trial only reported one. Again, this is really different, right? We see this all the time in our field. It's a really, now again, this was happening in drug trials. That's one of the reasons on the drug graphs I showed you that they were, journal reports were different than FDA reports. They were picking out one outcome and reporting that in the journal. And the ones that they told the FDA was the most important one they weren't tell, telling people about, right? So you can twist the results. But again, if you look at this one, if you did this intervention and the calc got better, chem got worse, everything else was unchanged, it doesn't look so good anymore, does it? So this is, you know, this is called selective outcome reporting. And so it's a real problem. We've done a bunch of studies in this area. All of these were undergrad studies in or master studies. And Marlene Azar did a great one. She put it in the JAMA internal medicine. And we actually look at a non-regulated. So regulated studies are drugs and in, in, uh, devices like stents where you deliver, you put them in a vessel to, for cardiac disease. So she looked at non-regulated, but which by means the government isn't, regulating the trials. And it was actually pretty terrible. We found that most journals didn't require regulation. Now the good journals, like the ones I showed you, JAM and the New England Journal, they require you register up front. They've, they've got their ducks in, in a row and these things. But a lot of the other journals were things like physical therapy, psychology, surgery. Anyone, anyone want honest surgery trial reporting here? Probably, probably good, right? Okay, thanks Olivia for the support. Uh, yeah, so I mean, what did, what did uh, Marlene find is that most journals didn't require it, but even if they did, it didn't help very much. Only 30% of their trials were registered anyway. And out of 953 trials, we could only track down about three trials where they registered primary outcomes. That was exactly what they reported in the end. And almost none of them. So we have a lot of work to do in these trials. Now, that doesn't mean that all the other trials are wrong. Some of the trials could still have been honestly reported or honestly reported, even though they didn't register. But it tells us that we have a lot of work to do here and that we need, we need to be able to deliver people healthcare that works. And again, these are, these are things that students can do because we, we learn about trial design, you learn about either randomization or reporting, and it takes some work. It's not so straightforward to, to figure out what's going on in the trial. So the students get good skills in that area and they write useful papers that help people solve some problems. All right.
So given everything I've told you, should we give up on research altogether? I mean, I've, I've told you about a lot of problems in research, but I don't want you to go away with a message that we should give up on research. This is not a, this is not a talk about nihilism, right? This is, um, it's, research is where we've gotten how, you know, life, life uh, span has increased dramatically. Our quality of life has increased dramatically over the last century or decades. And that's because of research. If you look at what happened in COVID, um, I mean, people bark about all sorts of things in COVID, but the fact that they, that they put together vaccine programs and the success they're having this fast is, is miraculous. And this comes down to science and research. So the message here is not to throw away the science. The message here is that great things are going on in science. And it's just incredible. It's, it's, I don't know if you haven't worked in a research environment, what's going on in COVID is mind boggling. Uh, and some of the successes that they've had out there. It's just and, and the work that people put in, the dedication and, and just how well they've done it. So that's not the message. So don't give up on your science. We need to do it better. And I just want to give, again, I, there are all sorts of research at McGill that people are doing um, other than meta research. This is just what, what a lot of people do in our group. group. Um, Olivia has been involved this last year in tracking uh, trials, to, mental health trials in COVID-19 you know, and, and what options that public health agencies and other government agencies have to provide it to people and done a tremendous job on that. Um, so it's not, me not meta research, right? There's, there's, uh, research on genes and molecules and anything you can think of going on at McGill. So if I could leave you with anything, you know, get involved when you go, if you go to McGill or anywhere else, right? We're not the only ones who do research, obviously, but you get involved in research, you, just, you know, put your toes in the water and you might like it. And if not, you'll learn something and you'll, you'll go on and, and be better for it. So I just want to thank, thank everyone on our team who all the work we do. And, and we always thank our funders for paying for all this all this good work and with that one i'm gonna olivia's gonna talk now about you i kept coming back to to you know how we decide what research to use and who gets to benefit from the research so in addition to doing her own research olivia's been super active in really important advocacy in a student-run group at mcgill and she's gonna uh talk to you about that um so i'll turn it over to, over to her and then we can take some open questions at the end great thanks so much brett okay I'm gonna steal the screen share now. Okay. Alors, on part en vacances ou t'as une augmentation? Non, non, c'est pas ça, Julie. Euh... Tu, tu, tu sais, je suis pas à l'aise pour les discours, tout ça. Je... Ça fait, je voulais. Je t'aime, Julie. C'est celle-là C'est exactement celle-là. Mais comment t'as fait Non mais... Non mais là, ça a dû te coûter une fortune. un petit peu d'eau avec Non, merci. Je crois que... Je vais attendre le bon moment, en fait. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that little twist at the end. Um, at UAM, we're all about 
using elements of surprise and creativity for advocacy. But before I go into that, I'll just briefly explain who I am again. Um, I'm Olivia. I'm a student under Brett. Uh, I'm in my last semester of cell bio at McGill. But um, like Brett, I've also taken the broad instead of deep approach. So I've um, studied a bit of medical anthropology and physiology. Uh, and now I'm doing mental health research, as Brett mentioned. And honestly, I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, and I've really enjoyed the diversity of my classes, but I always say I've learned equally as much um, from my advocacy work with McGill's UAEM chapter. Um, it stands for Universities Allied for Essential Medicines. So that's what I'm going to talk to you guys about today. Um, I joined the group knowing very little about access to medicines, and now I run the McGill chapter and I'm involved in some national organizing for Canada and the States. So it's been quite a journey and I am so grateful I found this group and I'm so excited to share it with all of you guys today. So I'm just gonna go over a bit of an overview of what we do, our work, some access to medicines issues here in Canada, a bit of what we do at McGill and then some student advocacy tips if we have time at the end. So what is this acronym? Um, UAM is a nonprofit rooted in global movement of university students, which just means that we have chapters all over the world. We have over 122 chapters actually. So it's quite a big group. And the cool thing is it's an interdisciplinary group as well. So we have students in e economics, uh, biology. We have a lot of like pre-medical and medical students um, law is a big one, and it's also students from all levels join us. So we've had PhD students at the McGill chapter, um, a lot of undergrad, masters as well. Um, so it's pretty fun to get to work with a diverse group of people. The only requirement is that you have to share the vision that no one should be sick because they're poor or poor because they're sick. That's our um, little catchphrase that we use, and it's pretty powerful if you think about it. So. Just before I go into our work, I want to briefly touch upon the journey of a drug because I'm aware that we may be coming to this all with different backgrounds and this sort of thing. So um, a lot of people think that pharmaceutical companies do most of their own research. Uh, and there is a good amount of that. But in fact, the fundamental research for many of the drugs we use today was actually done in university labs with public funding. And the problem with that is that the public is often forced to pay twice then because we pay at the first phase in the form of taxes that fund um, university research. And then we also pay at the last phase after when the drug is licensed off to a pharmaceutical company or a spin-off company, they market it. And if it's a exclusive license, then the company is free to charge however much they want um, and often we pay too much at this, at this stage. So a lot of the work that UAM does is upstream here with the patent office. Um, and we really attempt to lay basically a legal foundation for equitable access. Um, we're working with university technology transfer offices or TTOs to come up with alternative forms of licensing with the idea that, um, as students at any university, these are our labs, these are our drugs, and it's our responsibility. That's another big phrase that we share because if you think about it, 
it doesn't make sense to not want to be a part of the research that's happening at your own university. So our work, this is a UAMers baby dressed up as a um, free and accessible COVID vaccine, very cute. Our first big project is the Global Access Licensing Framework. And by the way, you can see all these links here. I think hopefully I'll be able to figure out a way to send these slides out to you. So if you're interested in anything I talk about today, um, a good place to start is some of these links. So the Global Access Licensing Framework or GALF, this is, um, these are policies that we encourage universities to adopt, which ensure that basically if publicly funded research done at a university is licensed to a pharmaceutical company, it's done in a way so that in crisis, if it can be shown that this is a life-saving treatment, um, then the patent or the license can be broken, um, generics can be manufactured, and hence the drug becomes affordable and more accessible. I was actually involved in the process to adopt these principles at McGill in 2018. And since then, we've been told that the principles have actually been written into real licenses between McGill and pharmaceutical companies, which is pretty cool, I think. So then, of course, another big part of the work we do is advocating for alternative research and development models, such as we have patent reforms um, through patent pooling. And then there's also this concept of delinkage you may have heard floating around if you're ever interested in public health. Um, true to its name, this concept is just proposing to delink a company's investment into research and development um, from the price of the medicine. And they do that through alternative incentive models such as um, prize money um, and other options. So you can imagine that a big argument from pharma is that, well, drugs cost a lot of money to produce, so we have to charge a lot. And that's true, like drugs really do cost a lot of money to produce, but there's also a lot of money that goes into marketing, a lot of money that goes back to shareholders. So unfortunately, sometimes the prices aren't justified um, and then that defeats the purpose of a drug, right? Because if people can't afford it, it's just not useful. It's not getting to anyone. It's not saving anyone's life. Um, so delinkage is a powerful tool. Many have proposed to bring down prices. And these are the types of things that UAM students are actively involved in researching and advocating for. Um, and then we're also involved in calls for open science, uh, research transparency. And that's how I found Brett because um, as you saw, he's done work on research ethics and accountability. And this is really just trying to make sure that the public gets a fair return on investment. So if we pay for a clinical trial, we want to see it done right. We want to see it pre-registered online. Um, and then we want to see the results reported. Um, it's better for patients, it's better for science, but unfortunately that's not really happening. Um, problems with selective reporting like you saw and also just not pre-registering at all. Um, so we've done some work specifically at McGill here to look into that a bit more. And then we're also involved in AMR, which you may have heard about. It's antibiotic microbial resistance. And I like to say, if I have to describe it in 10 words, it's antibiotic overuse causes microbial resistance to existing drugs very bad. And if you have 15 words, you can say very, 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 very bad because 
this is one of those issues that experts say will really destroy us. And I'm sure that's not hard to believe because we're living through a pandemic and now we know that a little microbe or a virus can turn our world upside down. So um, this is a very important issue. And the reason why it's a UAM issue is because our current profits-driven research and development system is not set up to incentivize development of new antibiotics because they're just not particularly profitable. So as you can see, that really needs to change probably sooner rather than later. And then of course, our most recent campaign is just COVID-19 access. So we're asking for access to therapeutics, diagnostics, and vaccines. And I don't have time to go into it today, but this campaign is called the Free the Vaccine Campaign. And it's a really cool project. It's got a lot of emphasis on creative activism. And the cool thing actually is that it's open to anyone, not just UAM students. I have worked with grandmothers from the Grandmothers Research and Advocacy Network, or GRAN, that's their um, acronym. Uh, they're so awesome. So if you go and look into one thing after this talk, definitely it should be the Free the Vaccine campaign. Okay, so I hope at this point I've convinced you that UAM is a really awesome organization, um, but I just want to stress that we're awesome because we have awesome students. Um, it seems like every day UAM students are getting an article published or they're speaking somewhere like Parliament and the World Health Assembly. We always send a couple students to that every year. Um, and people really take notice. We usually get a good amount of press coverage for our campaigns. And we actually even have a HBO documentary covering the Free the Vaccine campaign. So people find some pretty neat opportunities. And then if you're a student who is a little more introverted, um, equally as brilliant. We write a lot of reports and we do a lot of research. Uh, the most, the ones that probably get the most press coverage are our university report cards, which grade report grade universities on transparency and access. Uh, we just also recently completed a mapping of all public COVID funding. Um, and I think most notably, the one that really stands out in my mind is two years ago, some UAM students came out with a report about the dismal clinical trial reporting rates in the specifically clinical trials sponsored by universities in the States. And we got a lot of press coverage. We got coverage in Nature, which in the scientific community is pretty flashy um, for those of you who are familiar with that. And all this bad press caused universities like Vanderbilt and Columbia to report unregistered data overnight um, upon release of those pieces. So of course, that's why we do what we do. We're trying to generate as much coverage as possible, but it's because it sparks change. So all this to say, this could be you. If, it impress, if any of it impresses you, um, get excited because you can do this cool stuff too. Uh, how are we on time? I want to leave enough time for questions. So maybe, I think we still have 15 minutes, but maybe if people have questions, just definitely put them in the chat because I want those to be answered. So, okay. Assuming that most of you guys are interested in access to medicines as it relates to Canada, I want a couple of, I want to highlight a couple issues. Um, we don't have time to cover them all, so I'm going to focus on some relevant ones. And the first, we have to talk about insulin, because this year is actually the 100-year anniversary of 
uh, discovery of insulin at University of Toronto. And as you probably know, insulin is one of those drugs that's seen astronomical price increases in the recent years. And you may be thinking, okay, but that's an American issue. But actually, and I was surprised to find this out, today, a century after the discovery of insulin at U of T, 57% of Canadians can't afford their, um, their prescribed insulin. And then globally, of course, the most common cause of death for a child with type 1 diabetes is lack of access to insulin. So we have the drugs, it's just people can't access them. And even at this point, the issue of insulin is far more than a Canadian issue. At UAM, we take the, we take the our labs, our drugs, our responsibility approach, and we like to use insulin as an example of what can happen when we are not thinking carefully about how we license the discoveries that happen on our own soil. Um, insulin's a pretty complicated issue, but in short, if it had been licensed openly using principles such as the global access licensing ones I discussed earlier, the patent monopoly on it today could probably be avoided. Um, and that monopoly is one of the things that's causing insulin to be priced out of reach for way too many people. And then, of course, the COVID vaccine nationalism is also highly relevant um, in terms of who gets access to that vaccine. Basically, in Canada, we are talking the walk, talking the talk, but we're not really walking the walk. Last summer, Trudeau was he was out there saying, OK, well, the most vulnerable will get access first. Um, but unfortunately, that's not happening right now after the vaccine has been released. Canada has pre-purchased enough vaccine to cover its population almost four times. So, and then other, other countries like South Africa, which by the way, South Africans, a lot of them were involved in the COVID clinical trials. Now South Africa is struggling to purchase any doses. So leaders from lower and middle income countries are really angry at countries like Canada for hoarding vaccines and they're calling for a more centralized system that does away with the intellectual property surrounding at least COVID innovations. And that would allow for a more equitable vaccine distribution plan, which of course is something UAM has been calling for for years. But at this point, unfortunately, in terms of COVID, it doesn't look like that's, that's going to happen or at least anytime soon. But do not despair because we have a lot of great opportunities for students to get involved in this. We have some really cool people working hard on this stuff at the McGill chapter. Um, we also have some fun as well. This is Izzy and Sasha washing the windows of the administration building to call for increased transparency. Ha ha. Um, and this is us. <laughs> Thanks, Brett, for the laughs. This is us jumping for medicines priced out of reach. Um, and it may seem silly, but this stuff actually works, you guys. Um, we weren't getting a response from the technology transfer office to discuss the global access licensing principles. And then after we had this, this jumping event here, uh, we made some caused commotion and uh, we got an email response and that's what started the conversations to adopt GALF at McGill. So 2018 was a big year for us. We got GALF and then we also hosted the North American conference which was really, really fun because we had students from all over the world, Korea, Brazil, and we actually, we hosted them in our apartments, which was quite an intimate way to make new friends and network. Um, so that's another great opportunity um, 
when you get involved in research and advocacy, it's not all work. You also have the opportunity to make some really great connections. So this year at McGill, obviously COVID has changed the way we work, but we're still very, very busy. We are leading the Canadian update to the report card, which I'm excited about. It's a lot of work, but it's going to be rewarding because universities really do respond to that. And we're working on a open science education program with the Montreal Neuro. We have students working on the Free the Vaccine campaign. We always present a global health night every year. Um, we write op-eds, we have students competing in case competitions. And then we also have a couple students who are working on some elective research. Um, so what we try to do is help students pair up with faculty at McGill or other universities and work on um, some UAM related research for credit. So we, we try to do as much of that as possible because there are some really cool faculty who are interested in this stuff and we just, we don't have the connection yet. So that's always exciting. And let's see, if I have two more minutes, I just wanna give you guys three tips that I wish I had known because it's really helped in the past couple of years, I think. So my first is just to send emails. They should be short, but I think a lot of times students worry that faculty professors won't respond to them. They don't have time for them. They're too smart for them. And yes, professors are very busy, but they really do usually want to help as best they can if they have the time. So just send the email, go to the office hour. You never know. Um, you might be surprised. And it should, they should be short emails because you need to respect everyone's time. But uh, I've had some success this way, let's say. Um, and then the second is to embrace being a student. So the cool thing about being a student, even though sometimes people may assume you know less than you do, the flip side is that we really have the advantage of having access to people that the public generally doesn't have access to. And people don't perceive us as having ulterior motives or working with an agenda. So we have sort of a blank slate, which is helpful, especially helpful if you're trying to ask hard questions and generate change. So I found that people are much more likely to engage in a conversation if you approach it as, hi, I'm a student. I think we may disagree, but I'm really excited to learn from you. So take advantage of that because you will not be a student forever. And then the last is um, <laughs> just to meditate. Uh, Brett's gonna tell you that the research on the effects of mindfulness are, it's a bit shoddy. So uh, take this advice with a bit of salt, but a grain of salt. But I really do think meditation or just walking outside, doing anything that you know for you helps your brain chill out a little bit. That's really important, um, especially if you're advocating for something because the issue of access to medicines and really most issues you might end up advocating for are highly intersectional, right? So there's so many factors that influence um, how people access healthcare and medicine, which is why you need to be in it for the long haul. And it needs to be a long, slow, strategic fight. And to do that, you need to take care of yourself. So that is, that's, that's what I suggest. I wish I meditated more. And that's all from me. Um, you can follow UAM here if you want and feel free to reach out if you have any questions. Oh, thanks, Olivia. That's fantastic. So you, you thought you were here because you were doing fantastic creative work, but really it was because 
it was because you're not from Marianopolis and the people from Marianopolis don't believe that anyone outside of Marianopolis can be subsequently successful. So yep. yeah, so Olivia's a, a Canadian American student from Boston, but I think, I mean, what, what her group's doing is, is just tremendous. Um, and you brought up a lot of, I mean, I'm not, I don't know all the good points, but some of them, it, you know, takes the stuff I chuckled at, but that stuff really does make a difference these days. There's so much noise out there that getting someone's attention really matters. It could be getting attention in a good way, you know, like, like you guys do, or it could be getting attention in a bad way. That's one of, that's one of the biggest strategies of people are doing things that, you know, that are maybe self-serving is they can quickly tell people how many people are going to die and get someone's attention and get in front of a health minister with, with lots of people upset, right? So it, it, right, it's one of the tough things in science right now is that we do all this science, but translating it is in sound bites now. And so, you know, so the, I think the work that I wouldn't, I don't, I wouldn't undersell the work you're doing in that area. It's, it's really important. I mean, it's a, not only the, the solid foundations, but then these great sound bites you have that get people to pay attention to all the great work. You know, you have to have the great work underneath. You can't just be sound bites, right? Right, exactly. And that's one of the challenges. I mean, I think we're good as students, especially we're good at sound bites. We know how to work social media, but um, UAM has challenged me to really go back and get the foundation of the research. So when we're going up against these pharma people, they're like, we, we need to have research to back up our, our statements. So. So how we, I think we have, you know, a, a few more minutes and I, 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 I'd be happy. I presume Olivia, Olivia doesn't do anything all day. So she'd be happy to stay as long as she wants and no, nope. yeah. talk, but if we have if people have questions or comments or anything, um, you know, to ask us, um, I can, you know, we, I, we, our group loves working with students. So, you know, if, if you want to get in touch with us at some point, uh, my, my emails, was on the, uh, if, you know, it's my, you just look me up online. It's very easy. And Olivia put her email up there. So get a hold of us. What, what, any questions people have? Um, thoughts, criticisms. Um, yeah, my question is not directly related to UAEM, but I was just curious, like when you mentioned about the antimicrobial resistance, like stuff out there. You said that currently aren't being done in terms of research that are trying to curb AMR and I was wondering if there's any effect to that oh yeah there's lots yeah um there's there's a group working on it at McGill um and it, it's it's one of those I mean it's a sad issue but it's one of those cool issues because you need to come up at it from the policy side right to make sure that there are incentives to <clears throat> make sure that people are researching the right the right new antibiotics but then also you need to come at it from the scientific perspective thinking about okay maybe can we combine existing antibiotics so that one gets at the little guy's coat and the other one gets at his dna so yeah we all have to work together if you're interested in that there's a group at mcgill called mi4 it's McGill Interdisciplinary Initiative in Infection and Immunity. So MI, it's look at MI4 McGill. So that they actually got quite a bit of funding to, to do work across infectious diseases a couple of years ago. And they put together this interdisciplinary program that uh, I'm sure people there are doing research in that area. Saw another question in the chat. What's the role of law students at UAEM? Is, is it most, mostly with patents? Yeah, patents is a big part of it, but I think also 
um, with a background in law, you get really good at crafting arguments. So we also have students who are just um, involved in our advocacy work. They really know how to meet with policymakers. Um, my friend Louise uh, just graduated actually from law at University of Ottawa. And she was the one who, I'm so proud of her, so I talk about her all the time. She was the one that spoke in parliament when we were um, proposing our, our thing about lowering insulin prices in Canada because she has diabetes and she's personally struggled with this. So she took her personal history, but then also her law background to craft a really compelling argument in that. Uh, I'd just like to ask, um, there are a lot of interesting initiatives talked about, but since it's COVID time, and I believe that the law limits the ways people can communicate with each other, uh, if students cooperate with each other on different initiatives, so what are some of the ways that students have tried to bolster their teamwork, especially during these times where we can't really meet each other and share information except over the internet and so on? Yeah, just from a logistical standpoint, it's super tricky. I agree. Um, Slack is our best friend. We really love organizing on Slack. We also, for the Free the Vaccine project, um, they've discovered that it's really helpful to break people into little micro labs. So that lab will meet once a week and then the whole group comes together um, once a week as well. Yeah, using those, those platforms to help you and then also figuring out how to work in, in small groups, I think is the best thing we can do right now. Has all your work been done through virtual platforms? Yes. Uh, no, no. We have hosted a couple rallies in uh, DC and London with masks socially distanced, obviously. I think I had a couple photos. We had a, a funk rally in DC, which was really cool. Yes. Okay. Thank you. And let's take one last question. It was just about the trials for antidepressants. For example, I know there's a problem with people complaining about overprescription of medication or misinformed prescription. So is the skewing of these trials and the poor participant selection contributing to the problem? Or does like the FDA or the Canadian agency pick up on this, making it not an issue in the end? So, I mean, there, there are a lot of, mental health is a tricky issue because I think for what it's, it's fair to say that so many, many people with mental health problems in Canada are not getting the treatment they need. So we have that side of the coin, whether it be stigma or the lack of access to services, you know, if you go to a public hospital, you don't have insurance, it's going to be very difficult to get treatment anytime soon. Uh, you know, there's a cash and carry, there's waiting lists, so it's difficult. At the same time, you know, there's tremendous over-prescription and over-treatment. So there's two sides of this coin, right? What do I mean by, you know, over-treatment is basically that if you're treating people in ways that don't help them. And as I said, everything comes with harm. So when the, when the FDA or, or Health Canada approves a drug, it means you're allowed to use it for a given indication. Um, so yeah, if, if, you if you test antidepressants um, in, in people with, what they use is they're going to have a threshold. You have a, they're going to have certain scales that they use regularly. You have to have a score above that scale, have certain characteristics to get in the trial. And that, right, that comes back, but you know, only about 10% of antidepressants are prescribed in psychiatry, about 90% are in family medicine. And, and while there are some people in family medicine who are getting treatment there, 
who who have the similar characteristics of people in those trials, most of them don't. We don't, yeah. So I think it's fair to say that for many of those people, not all of them, I mean, some people are, are going to benefit, but the, the likelihood of benefit is far, far smaller in those settings than it is among people in psychiatry. And that, that's always a difficulty we have. Um, you know, you, you talk about the other drugs, one of the things that's happened with youth prescribing too. Again, and this is keep in mind that people need their treatments, but they're prescribing multiple drugs to youth and they're off, off label. And you might have seen the news recently, some of the drug companies will get uh, fined and hundreds of millions of dollars for off label or promoting. And they're not allowed to promote off label, meaning off label, meaning for a use other than what it's been approved. Mm-hmm. Some of them would just go out there and go ahead and do it because, you know, a $400 million fine in some of these drugs is, is, a, is a drop in the bucket compared to what they've actually made in profit for some of the off label prescribing that goes on. So I, I think it's 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 yeah it's it's tricky, um, you know there 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 are some of these problems that we have both like I said not people not getting enough treatment and people not getting the treatment they need and some people um, getting too much treatment you know it's hard it's hard to get say I mean and it's not you know some people have different preferences whether it's like pharmacology or psychotherapy it's hard if you you know people some people prefer one or the other. Um, and, there's, and they generally are similarly effective, although, of course, you know, one of them, the, the drugs will have more side effects, the therapy takes more time uh, and maybe more costly in some ways. And it's, it's hard to get therapy about, you know, the percentage of people with depression who get therapy treatment is about two or three percent. Mm. Like, you know, it's mostly drug yeah. treatment. So, yeah, those are those are great points. But it's not it's not really, unfortunately, the, the nuance of, of what gets allowed is not is not really there in the FDA or health Canada. It's basically it's it's if you've gotten across a low bar threshold, can you prescribe the drug for this use? Okay, thank you. All right, so let's all thank uh, Dr. Thomas and uh, Olivia Bonari for this uh, very interesting presentation. And um... thank you very much. Oh, thanks! Thanks for having us. It was real, really, real pleasure here to to do this. I hope we'd love to do it. We do it again. And thanks for all the great questions. And um, yeah, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. So yeah, I think, thanks, thanks to Olivia. So I think you know the work. I can't under, understate the work that she and her colleagues are doing. It's just uh, fabulous work. So thank you. And thanks for presenting that, Olivia. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us, guys. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for tuning to listen. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we did during the interview. If you liked this episode, learned something, or just want to help out a bunch of students, please leave a review, write a comment, and share this on social media. If you are listening to this on YouTube, please subscribe and write to us in the comments. All the books and other resources recommended by the interviewee are in the podcast description slash video description depending on your platform, and depending on when you see this, you might be able to use our affiliate link to purchase them. The Marianopolis Addendum podcast is actively seeking local sponsors here in Montreal, so if you are interested, please contact us at the email linked in the description. All the profit generated by this podcast will go back to fund our club's activity. If we have any surplus, they will be donated at the end of every month to a local charity. This episode was edited by Min, and the artwork is done by Camilla Huang. The producers and guests associated with this episode may express their opinion, but this podcast does not support any political parties. We only aim to bring different perspectives on different issues through the free exchange of opinions and ideas. We look forward to seeing you at our next broadcast. Cheers!